Selway. My name is Dr. Michael C. Boykin, and this is Old Theology is Christology. I'm going to be reading to you from two sections from of Matthew, Matthew 26, uh, 40, 36 through 40. And then I'm going to be reading from Matthew, uh, again, chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. This is where the readings I had from my Ash Wednesday service last night. And it emphasizes uh, the the time of Christ approaching his crucifixion. And it begins right after his institution of the Lord's Supper. Now we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we notice that in uh, the Synoptic Gospels, for instance, there, there's not a great deal of detail about what is happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. John, on the other hand, John chapter 17, which I'm going to be actually uh, preaching on during the midweek Lenten services uh, has a great deal of detail. We are listening to Christ talking to his father and uh, his conversation with him is very profound. In fact, many theologians simply refuse to comment or to preach on this gospel lesson. So let me go on by beginning with reading chapter 26. Again, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and his two sons uh, of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me for one hour? And then we have Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, This one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, what did you come to do? Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? 
that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day? I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the disciples left him and fled. This is the gospels of the Lord. When we look at what's taking place, one of the, I guess, remarkable things is how unremarkable Jesus' appearance is. What I mean by that is if Jesus was floating around or he was eight feet tall or he had a halo or light shining through him, he would be easy to identify. But because he looked like every other Jew, there was nothing in his appearance that made him remarkable. They had to have Judas go and identify him. And Judas says, well, the man whom I kiss, that's the guy. Seize him. Again, it shows us uh, in Christ Jesus, not only has the second person of the Trinity assumed into himself a human nature, but this human nature, as all human natures are, has those properties of a human nature. And what I mean by that is Jesus, as we see, you know, at times he gets hungry and he gets thirsty. There's times that he's sad. He weeps, for instance, when Lazarus uh, dies. Uh, sometimes he gets angry. We see that in his uh, zealousness for his father's house when he runs out the tax collectors and money changers. And here we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. He says to, uh, as he's praying, he says, I am sorrow to the point of death. I wish I were dead. That's sorrow. Because he understands that his cup, his hour, is at hand. He knows that, as we see, he's going to be arrested. And then a number of activities are going to take place. And I'm not going to go through them now. I'll go with the, uh, through them later on in other sermons. But most of you are probably familiar with the events that lead from Again, Jesus' arrest until his crucifixion. But again, I will go over those in, in later sermons and, and talking about th this. But we see Jesus, again, at, the at sorrow, I mean, to the point of death. And although Jesus, again, is always divine, right? there's never ever time he ceases to be divine. He does not... It's sometimes it's as if though his divine nature goes to sleep. And in those times, because Jesus uses his divine powers for his office, right, as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus isn't just going around doing magic tricks. Right? That's not the whole point of him. But what takes place is uh, Jesus, for instance, uh, and his 
fulfilling of the prophecy, such as Isaiah, and he understands himself. He understands that when Isaiah was talking about the suffering servant, that Isaiah was talking about him. Jesus is well aware of what's in store for him. And I'm going to be actually reading to you from the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, because Jesus, as I said, understands that his time of testing, his time of trial, is about to occur. Now, I don't want to in any way disparage Jesus's physical suffering. But Jesus was not the only person crucified. I mean, for instance, uh, at one time during the, the slave rebellion, uh, this is, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Spartacus. You've probably seen movies and things like this. Uh, at the end of that rebellion, all of the slaves were crucified from that part all the way to, to Rome. You could travel the road, and I think it was around 6,000 of them were crucified. So crucifixion wasn't anything new. Now, here is the difference. Crucifixion's whole purpose was that of humiliation. Everything about it. The, the, the ridicule, the mocking, the spitting, uh, the, the, uh, the various, uh, uh, not to say mockings, but ridicule that Jesus experienced, uh, being stripped, being beaten, all of these things were for one purpose, humiliation. There was no, there was no death more humiliating than crucifixion. In fact, a Roman citizen could not be crucified. The slaves could. And Jesus died that uh, death of a, a slave, an ignominious death, a shameful death. I mean, that's what it is. Hey, to die on the cross was shameful. But here, here is what tears at Jesus' soul. And why he, he, he prays. That human part of him says, Father, remove this cup. And he's talking about the cup of God's wrath. That's what he's talking about. For the first time in Jesus' existence, as and dealing here with the incarnation, he's going to be separated from his father. And we hear him say this in the, in the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know this takes place. And I'm, again, I'll, I will be reading from some Bible verses that show that. Jesus, as I said, is in the garden. And, and he understands that not only is he going to be separated from his father, God's going to turn his back on him. God's going to abandon him. He is alienated from God. The whole darkness, and I believe it says, instead of just the land, the whole world, the whole world became dark at Jesus' crucifixion. That darkness is an outward, visible manifestation of God abandoning his son. So God's wrath 
is going to be poured out on Jesus. Jesus says, Father, if it, if it your will, remove this cup from me. And the Father says to Jesus, no. No. You're going to drink it every last drop. You are going to experience the totality of my wrath. Imagine having to bear that. Can you then can you blame Jesus or wonder why Jesus was sorrow to the point of death? Jesus has to fulfill the prophecy. And he, and he says that, Father, not, not my will, but your will be done. As a manifest, here again, Jesus is living as a man. He is showing us what a life of faith is. He is, as, as a man of faith, he, is, he believes that God is a gracious and loving God. God will hear his prayers. And he puts his faith in God, trust in God. And so that's what we see. And, and Jesus has perfect faith. We, we are sinful. Our faith is always imperfect. Always remember uh, the person that confronted Jesus about healing his daughter. And he says to Jesus, uh, uh, heal my daughter if you can. Jesus looks at him and says, uh, if I can, if I can, man immediately realizes his error. He says, Lord, I believe, forgive my unbelief. And we are as human beings, we're as sinful human beings. We are both, even, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, how strong you think your faith is. The fact is we are always believer and unbeliever at the same time. This, that's just the reality. Christ is the perfect believer, has perfect faith in God. So we look in chapter 24, and I'm going to maybe jump ahead to, to hear the arrest of Jesus. Jesus is arrested. And Peter pulls out his sword, and he's going to defend Jesus. You're not going to take Jesus without a fight. Now, uh, I don't know how many men came to arrest Jesus. It doesn't give a specific number. Now, in the Greek, it talks about what the, the typical word that we would use for a cohort. At the time, a Roman cohort was about 480 men. So there may have been 480 people that had gone up to get Jesus. And in one sense, it kind of makes sense because Jesus is accused of being an insurrectionist. He's accused of leading an insurrection. Serious, serious charge, serious crime. So there may have been that many. Again, you can't be definitive because it doesn't say that, but there's a lot of people. 
And, and Jesus said, put away your sword, Simon, because if I wanted to, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels down here. But it's necessary for me to do this. It's necessary, as he says, for me to fulfill the prophets. We kind of see this, for instance, in Luke chapter 24, verses 20, 24 through 27. This is Jesus walking behind the, these two disciples to the road to Emmaus. Of course, they, they don't recognize Jesus. They're not carrying on this conversation about all the events. And then, then Jesus approaches them, and he says to them, All foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary... Was it not necessary? It's by divine necessity. It's by divine necessity, not human necessity, by divine necessity. This was his father's will. That the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, all the scriptures, in the scriptures, all the things concerning himself. Everything, this, this is how I look, everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. Not just in parts, not just certain verses. The entire Old Testament points to Christ. You can think of it as type and antitype. It's like the Old Testament is the, the type and Christ is the antitype. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the center of the Old Testament. When Isaiah is writing, he's writing about Christ. Uh, and, and that's important to understand. The Old Testament, in fact, all of the scripture has to be understood Christologically. That is, through Christ. Now, I'm going to be uh, this Sunday preaching on uh, Genesis 22, and you're probably familiar with that, and that's the, the story of Abraham. I, uh, story, I should say historical narrative. Sometimes you, you say story, people think a fairy tale or something. This is actually a historical narrative. It's happened. It's reality. And if you were trying to look at what took place, um, and, I, and by the way, I'll, I'll I'm going to be, preaching on this, teaching on this, and I'll have it available for you next week uh, and, and go into more detail and specifically. But if you look at that event, and you look outside of Christ, it looks like God is, com is, is ethically challenged. He, he is commanding Abraham to kill his son, to sacrifice his son. And Abraham goes along with it. So Abraham looks like some kind of child abuser. Uh, if, you, if you look at it outside of Christ, it's not a very, uh, like I say, comforting picture of God. But when you look at it through the eyes of Christ, oh, it's a wonderful, gracious account of a loving God. Uh, so you have to, if you don't, understand the scriptures 
and I'm here talking specifically about the Old Testament. Hopefully, you know, you know the New Testament is uh, centered in Christ. But if you, if you don't understand that the Old Testament is also Christ-centered, you're never going to understand the Old Testament. Period. And then in Mark 8, uh, 31 through 33, and he began to teach them, as disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, again, word must, in Greek, actually, you can translate this, necessary. It's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It was necessary that Jesus be arrested. It was necessary that Jesus allowed himself to be arrested to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And as I said, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was experiencing this sorrow to the point of death. Because uh, many places in the New Testament, Jesus quotes from Isaiah. Jesus identifies with the prophet Isaiah. And so let me read to you from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. He, and this was talking about Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. His own people rejected him. One of his disciples, Judas, betrayed him. Peter denied him three times, and they all fled except for John. He was despised and rejected. And, you, and by, you can see how much he was despised by just reading the account of those who walked by that cross and ridiculed him and mocked him. He was despised, truly. He was a man of suffering and acquainted with disease. He was despised as one from whom men hid their faces. And we didn't respect him. There was nothing remarkable about Jesus' appearance. And especially after being beaten and nailed to a cross, I don't imagine he was very comely. I don't think he, he was attractive at all. In fact, I think they looked at it and people go, oh, look at that. Surely he has borne our sicknesses, carried our suffering, yet we considered him plagued by God. Plagued by God. God said pox on you. To his son. Struck by God. Not man. God struck him. But God may have used men to do that. But God struck him. Make no mistake about it. And afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed. Who crushed him? God crushed him. God crushed his son. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace. 
And that peace, again, comes through the suffering and death of Christ. The result, one of the gifts of the suffering death of Christ is that we have peace with God. And by his wounds, Christ's wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him, listen to these words, the iniquity of us all. Of us all. The sins of every single sinner, past, present, or future, was laid upon Christ. And those sins, those iniquities, I mean, iniquity even sounds like a really bad sin, but it's sin, right? Was laid upon Christ. And then probably one of uh, a... a a verse that I truly, truly stand in awe because I, I don't, I, my mind cannot fully comprehend. There are many things in Scripture that are mysteries that you, you simply can't explain. You have, you have to accept my faith. You have to accept by putting our faith in the sure and certain promises of God. Right? I don't look for God outside of those things. I don't look for God in me. I don't look for God outside. I look for God in his word. Period. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, not for his sake, for our sake, God, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, either uh, original sin or actor sin, whatever sin, he, he knew no sin. He never sinned. God made him sin, that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, we have this felicitous, uh, or joyous, maybe it's a better word, joyous exchange. Christ takes his righteousness and exchanges it for our unrighteousness. God takes the wrath that should be poured on, out on us, and he takes that wrath upon himself. The fullness of the wrath, the totality of that wrath. Jesus, who is a sinless life, who achieved that righteousness, gives it to us, and takes all of our sins, the sins of the whole world, every, every sin of every sinner, all the sins are on Christ. All of them. All of the wrath of God is on Christ. He who knew not sin became sin. It's like you could take all the sins of the world and, and, and make them into a ball, you might say, and nail them to the cross. That's where the sin... If, if our sins are upon Christ, right? If our punishment is upon Christ, if, if our wrath is upon Christ, they're not on you. Thanks be to God. And then I'm just going to leave with the, probably 
the part that really rips at Jesus' soul. And I'm reading here from the 15th chapter of Mark, verse 33 through 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. I said, I, I would translate that over the whole world. Yeah, uh, in, in Greek, land and world are the same word. It's, it's, so it's, you just, usually context, context determines how you translate that. To me, it, it, I believe it's the whole world. Until the ninth hour, and at the, sixth, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. He didn't, Jesus doesn't call him Father. He calls him God. Because he's experiencing the wrath of God. Why have you forsaken me? Christ experienced hell on that cross because hell is the separation of us from God, from God. In fact, separation in which we feel the eternal wrath of God's anger. Jesus experienced that. When we look at what Christ suffered for us, what he accomplished for us, say thanks be to God that we have a, such a gracious and loving God that he loved us so much that John 3 16 said God loved us so much that he gave us his only begotten son and whosoever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life this is the gospel to us and as I close this I close it with the typical Latin uh, farewell of Wale God be with you, and I'm looking forward next week to talk about Abraham and Isaac.